Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience, special in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Hi all, Dr. Myers here, back with an episode about sibling abuse, the third in this series on this subject. In the first episode, I talked about what sibling abuse is and what it can look like. And in the second episode, I focused on the impact of the abuse on intimate relationships in adulthood. And today, I'm going to address the experiences and family conditions that increase the risk of sibling abuse occurring. And then I'm going to move into talking about the physical, environmental, emotional, and behavioral indicators that sibling abuse presents during childhood. Did you ever wonder what healthy family functioning looks like? So according to the research, there should be caring and mutually supportive relationships. Also, the children should feel protected. And effective leadership from the parents should be balanced with autonomy for the children. So of course that autonomy looks different at different ages. But if you think about it, everybody has to have a sense of independence and a sense of trust that that independence won't harm anybody or oneself within the family. There also should be consistent patterns of interaction with clear rules and expectations. So in other words, somebody can't get punished one day and the same behavior repeats itself another time and it goes untended to. And there also should be acceptance of a range of emotional expressions, meaning it's okay to express upset or anger, and that these emotions are not only tolerated but managed well, and there should be effective conflict resolution. Well, I don't know about you, but I certainly didn't have those elements present in my family, at least certainly not all of them. And I don't know what family does have all of those elements, but I can certainly tell you that in an abusive sibling environment, most of these aspects are not present. So it's kind of interesting that the risk factors for sibling abuse somewhat mimic or are similar to the risk factors for parent-child abuse. Um, but I'm gonna be very clear on what those are. So when there is parent-child abuse occurring within a family, oftentimes there is displaced violence from one child onto another. And why does this happen? Because obviously the child who is being abused by a parent does not have the ability to retaliate against the parent, so it's easier to turn that anger and upset onto 
a family member who has less authority. And this was made clear with an example by one participant who said, my mother heard my sister curse and she took her into the bathroom and tried to shove soap down her throat. I remember feeling scared for her. And so when my mother went into the bedroom, I went in to see how my sister was doing. I don't remember what I said, but I was trying to comfort her. And she started hitting me and I had no idea why. She threw me off the bunk bed and onto the floor. This kind of stuff went on all the time and my mother couldn't care less. So we have parent-child abuse as one risk factor for the occurrence of sibling abuse. Another risk factor is a family with scarce resources. And by scarce resources, we're talking about a few things. One is social capital. That means social supports. People who have a sense of community, who have some ability to relieve their stress through a sense of belonging and a sense of mutual support. If we think about the idea of displacement in another form, we can also think about the stress that parents experience in the job force and with financial stressors. So these stressors are brought into the family dynamic, and there can be less time and energy spent to nurturing appropriate sibling relationships and providing outlets that are needed for healthy development. There also seemed to be a theme that single-parent families also created unhealthy relationships between siblings because there was role confusion. This can mean that a sibling acts as a caregiver towards the other sibling, and therefore their boundaries are confused, their sense of authority is heightened, and sometimes they take on the parental role in terms of disciplining the younger child and thinking that they know how to manage the child. Well, if you think about it, if there's an eight-year-old in a caregiver role of a six-year-old, that eight-year-old is not developed in terms of understanding Understanding what may be appropriate or knowing how to parent, of course, and they may treat that child as though it is their own and be excessively aggressive towards them, but also there may be some resentment at having been put into that position as a young child and therefore, again, displacing that anger onto the younger sibling. Now, there's a saying that every child within the same family has a different mother, meaning that the way that one parent, in this case the mother, relates to each child is completely different. And so each child has a completely different experience of that caregiver. Sometimes there's actual favoritism or there's perceived favoritism. Again, this breeds resentment and hostility between siblings. Sometimes it's simple as a child may have a character that one parent has a greater affinity towards, or maybe that child looks like the parent, and that creates the affinity. Nonetheless, whatever the causal root is, the effect remains the same. The child who is not the favored one or not the perceived favored one develops anger towards the child who is. So really what we're talking about right now is the role of parents in creating an environment or relationship that's punitive. There can at times even be parental collusion with the perpetrator of sibling abuse. This is when a parent either explicitly or implicitly supports the abusive behavior. I'll give you an example from a participant in my research. She said, after my brother smashed my toe, I went to my mother and said, I think my toe is broken. And the mother said, well, if your toe is broken, you'll have to be in a cast up to your hip and stay home and never go to school. So what is it? Is it broken? 
And I said, no, because there couldn't have been anything worse than staying home. If I was hurt at my brother's expense, it was more about being a pain for my mother. She wouldn't be interested in hearing anything. I think I did say things to her sometimes about what Brett would do, and she would think that it was funny. And she would say to me, you know, we really wanted Brett. You have to understand this, Tamar. Brett was a wanted child. So that's not exactly subtle. Charles Adams has a cartoon. He's the creator of the show, The Adams Family. So this cartoon depicts parental collusion to the extreme. The mom tells the victimized child, well, don't come whining to me. Go tell him you'll poison him right back. Maybe a less extreme example would be a participant who was telling me that her brother was yelling at her right in her face and trying to get her to study more or do better with grades. And it was certainly done in an extremely unhelpful and threatening manner. So she grabbed the keys to the house, ran outside. And when he came after her with such force, she threw the keys. And her mother came out and said, maybe he has important things to say. So that's a little less extreme, but it's still an example of parental collusion. The way that a parent responds to the abuse that's happening is so important in how it continues to play out and how the messaging is sent to the victim in terms of his or her level of worth. Many of the parents in my study kind of passively accepted what happened. Sometimes the victim reported, and I should say the survivor, because it's a victim as it's happening in childhood and a survivor having lived through it and making it to adulthood. So survivors reported that oftentimes their parents were actually present as this occurred, and they just didn't know how to manage it or they managed it inappropriately. One participant reported that her parents' passive acceptance had a lot to do with her low self-esteem. In fact, she said, my low self-esteem around men has a lot to do with the way my brother treated me. There was no excuse for him doing what he did to me, and yet no one ever stood up and protected me. So in my mind, if they weren't protecting me, then I must have deserved it. And that goes back to what I talked about in an earlier episode about the double whammy, that not only is your supposed loved and supportive sibling mistreating you, but your parents don't have the ability to intervene. And so that sends the message that you really are of no value. There was a range of parental responses provided from passivity while being present to a lack of presence and being completely uninvolved to being punitive. So the punitive response was twofold. First, oftentimes the sibling who was being abused was blamed for the uproar. And when the abusive sibling was punished, well, then there would be double backlash for the victim in the sense that now there was going to be a big price to pay. And here's the part that I think is really interesting, is that there were cases in which the abused sibling was taken to therapy, but for that child, the message was that they were the root of the problem. And so while obviously both children should have been in therapy, the victim for the repercussions that they were experiencing and the abusive sibling for the behavior and trying to understand where is this coming from, what often happened was that only the one who had experienced the abuse was taken into therapy. Now, of course, this also was a protective factor in the sense that having their experience validated and being treated for 
the implications of what was to incur was going to be extremely helpful. But again, the messaging experience at the time was that this person was the cause of the issue that needed to be fixed. Now we know the parental practices that can create the occurrence of sibling abuse. So to summarize, child abuse, child neglect, single parent status, and financial stress. But know that sibling abuse has no gender, age, or class. As well, poor social capital, which means, again, poor supports or a lack of community to relieve the stressors, the emotional or physical absence of parents, and poor parental modeling, whether it's through how they're relating to each other, relating to their children, or how they manage conflict, a closed family system, meaning what happens in the family stays in the family, or that there's really just not enough exposure to outside resources, inappropriate hierarchical relationships, which means that the siblings are in a caregiver role or the children are serving as emotional caregivers. Now, the emotional indicators of sibling abuse are many, and the symptoms can also look like symptoms of other issues like depression or anxiety or child abuse. But the key here, as in any assessment, is taking in the big picture. One or two or even three symptoms does not mean sibling abuse is present, but we need to consider environment and emotions and behavior. And if we know the indicators, then we are better positioned to make an accurate assessment that this is occurring. So those emotional indicators are low self-esteem, anxiety, passive or withdrawn or emotionless behavior, fear and avoidance of going home, or fear and avoidance of the sibling and or the parent, obviously. I remember that there was one participant who said that between those hours of three to six, after school and before the parents got home, she sought haven at a friend's house in order to avoid being alone with the sibling. Depression. Obviously, this kind of treatment is going to lead to, as we said, low self-esteem and just feeling really, really sad. And that may cause social isolation, disturbed sleep, poor appetite or overeating as an attempt to cope, right, putting away your feelings. These survivors and victims were more likely to report migraines and headaches and not engage in things that they usually enjoy. As well, there's often a decline in academic performance because there's a difficulty concentrating. What you may see behaviorally is that a child acts out the abuse in their play. So sometimes the children's roles are rigid and one child is always the aggressor and the other the victim. So the victim of sibling abuse may actually switch roles from being victim to aggressor. Aggressor is an attempt to experience and take control over another child that they don't have the ability to do in their sibling relationship at home. It's like bullying, which personally I would term as peer abuse. Now, oftentimes bullies in schools are actually victims at home. Another behavioral indicator is that the roughness or violence between siblings is increasing over time. Now, maybe if sexual abuse is present, the victimized child is going to act out sexually in inappropriate ways. Usually this occurs in the school setting or during play at a friend's house when the victim turns into the aggressor. Going back to episode one, 
is what's occurring or what you're observing, sibling abuse or sibling rivalry? So first you need to determine if the questionable behavior is age-appropriate. So for example, children use different conflict resolution tactics during various developmental stages. And we have to understand that not all conflict is bad and even can be healthy, depending how it's resolved, how quickly it's resolved, and if there needs to be help for intervention. Also, determine if the behavior is an isolated incident or part of an enduring pattern. If it's enduring, we have a problem. You also need to determine if there is an aspect of victimization to the behavior. So remember, rivalry tends to be incident-specific, reciprocal, and obvious to others, while abuse is characterized by secrecy and an imbalance of power. And finally, determine the goal of the questionable behavior. The goal of abuse for the perpetrator tends to be embarrassment or domination of the victim with intent to harm. In sibling rivalry, there is no malintent. I think if we are armed with this information, we have the ability to help and prevent sibling abuse from occurring. So maybe you'll be the first to help teachers in your school or your children's school be more aware of the indicators of sibling abuse. Maybe you will inform your physicians with what to look for. How else can you increase awareness of this phenomenon? Or maybe this was helpful to you, and I'd be very happy with that. Sibling abuse is real. It's important. If you're a professional or parent, keep your antenna up. If you're a victim or survivor, you are important. You matter. If you want help, tell a school social worker or mental health professional or your physician. To learn more, you can find my published articles on my website at amymyersphd.org. That's amymyersphd.org. A-M-Y-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-H-D dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?